0: Hi everyone and welcome to Sustainable Futures, Designing Green Communities and Buildings, a Living Architecture Monitor podcast from Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. My name is Stephen Peck and I'm your host today, as well as the founder and president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities, the industry association for green roofs and walls across North America. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a very talented and colorful personality within the world of urban greening and natural infrastructure, the movement, Mr. Dusty Gedge. Uh, A fine Englishman. Dusty is currently the co-founder of Gentian Limited, which specializes in using technology like satellites, AI, and deep learning to remotely assess urban, peri-urban, and rural green infrastructure with a keen focus on biodiversity. He's also an internationally recognized designer, technical, and policy advisor in green infrastructure and biodiversity enhancement in the UK and abroad with over 25 years of experience. Published author... He's been instrumental in writing strategic reports on both green roofs and green infrastructure, the most recent of which was a new London Green Roof Report. He's also the president of the European Federation of Green Roof and Wall Associations or the EFB, a role which he has held for 13 years and which has enabled him to use his talents and experience to have an impact on urban nature and climate resilience through the introduction of multifunctional green infrastructure. Through the Federation, he is actively involved at the European Union level on um, nature-based solutions and biodiversity, especially in urban areas. In 2021, Dusty was appointed as the industry expert in residence to the prestigious Bartlett School of Architecture at University College London. And in 2022, he worked with the University College London looking at biodiversity, carbon neutrality, and biodiversity just to make sure he gets it in there dusty thank you so much for joining us
1: thank you very much uh steven and um yeah i'm it's it's kind of funny 25 years been doing this but i do like to say to people that i'm just i'm just a, a bloke from lewisham you know i've kind of i'm still just uh you know a guy who got off the street and maybe made an impact about green roofs you know
0: Hmm, that's a very humble start to this uh, interview for someone who is so accomplished. How'd you get started in all this, uh, a bloke from Lewisham? Well, yeah, it's kind of, you know, I think, you know,
1: Steve, if I come out to the States, I my second slide always involves a, a punk postcard. I, I was a punk in 1988 for three days as a model because uh, what happened was when I was a teenager, I, I'm a big naturalist, bird watcher. Uh, I was going to go off and study ecology and stuff. And then I started acting in theatre shows at school and I was quite good at it and so I ran off to the to the theatre instead and ended up becoming a a a professional actor and my second job was actually as a circus performer and I nearly got invited to join Circus Centre which is actually based out of Montreal if I remember rightly um but the reason why i got involved in green roofs is i'd sort of also did a lot of community theater and i set up this workshop to try and take get kids to encourage some of the kids who weren't going to school back into to go to school using circus and a guy who ran that um the project they had an ecology project and they wanted a local bird watcher to as a professional and um he knew i was a bird watcher so i got a job as this professional bird watcher and i found a rare bird that likes what we call in the uk post-industrial landscapes it's called the black red star and all the places where it lived were going to be built on so we had this mad idea why don't we just shove it all on the roof and that's kind of how i got into green roofs and um just to finalize that i'm just i was kind of like an environmental activist but all the engineers all the clever people were telling us we couldn't do it so i ended up going to europe to find out well basically go to europe to find out to make myself know more than all the experts mm-hmm. so i became this kind of uk expert out of necessity not out of uh the fact that it was um it was a calling as a
0: as a, a, a built environment professional. so your love of nature is something that you had growing up then you said you were a bird watcher before you even considered going to theater it's a Is that because of, how did that come about? I often wonder how people became.
1: Well, I I don't, I don't, I think it must be just within my DNA. And my mother always says to me that I fell out of my baby chair when I was one and a half chasing a robin. And I was never the same since. (laughs) And and she does actually say that, you know. (laughs)
2: But
1: but ever since I can remember, I've always wanted to go out in nature and watch birds. I, I, As long as I can remember. It's just part of who I am
0: you know right right well that is uh that's a fantastic uh, story um you know um you said that the brown roofs you mentioned brown roofs uh trying to recreate the habitat for the black red start you've also said it's one of your biggest mistakes trying to promote brown roofs and I think you managed to write it into some policy work in London as well what why is it your biggest mistake well, you know the,
1: the thing is we were all you know there's about five or six of us there's a whole group of us ecologists we want to put what we call brownfield habitat which in a uk context, is different from the north american because brownfield habitat is not more, not always contaminated and we liked the idea of all this crushed brick and concrete on a roof and i hadn't been to europe by then and we were so successful with this bird because it was protected and this brown roof idea it got set in policy and we were really successful But we didn't really know about growing medium. And, you know, on the continent, we have these brick-based, you know, uh, growing medium. They're aggregates. They have a soil, but there's a lot of aggregate in them. But concrete on a roof is not good because it doesn't hold any water. So so the plants really struggle. But even to this day now, with my sort of elevated reputation, you know, people come come up to me and say, oh, well, Dusty, you, you don't know about this. You don't know about brown roofs. And I kind of sit down and go, like, I was one of the guys who kind of invented the term. I think I know a lot about them. <laughs> but, you know, you know. so I always say, you know, be careful what you wish until you really know that it's technically correct. But we were, you know, we were environmental activists trying to do stuff for a bird.
0: And we made some mistakes. And I think it's always good to put your hands up if you make mistakes. Mm-hmm. In some In some cases, some of the most amazing biodiversity in urban areas are actually found in old industrial abandoned sites. You know that's where we get a lot of uh, species diversity now.
1: Yeah, I think um, I think you know it's always careful to compare to you know Canada or the United States of America because you've got such huge amounts of wilderness. But I think certainly when I've been over there talking to people who do stuff around New York and places, those those kind of sites are important. And at the time, sort of about 2004, so we're about seven years into my life, there was a famous newspaper article, which um, used to be an old ore refinery back in the 70s that never got built because, completed because of the oil crisis. And it's recognised as the Amazon jungle for insects in the United Kingdom. That's what the article was saying, because there was more rare species on this old ore refinery than you would find out in the wild countryside. So it's a bit of a conflict with our idea of this wonderful cultural landscape, you know, the prairies of, you know, Alberta. But actually, um, you know, sometimes these brownfield sites are really much, much
0: better, you know. hmm mm-hmm, yeah. We have something uh, close to uh, home in Toronto. We have a, uh, the Leslie Street Spit, was which was clean-filled. It's a five-kilometer-long peninsula going out to the lake, and it's just, it was supposed to be meant to create another harbor, but it's become restored and naturalized. And it's just filled with biodiversity now, even though it's, uh, you know, not as pristine prairie-like lam- landscape. Um, so why is biodiversity so important to you personally or and society in general? Why should we care? About- well, I think, you know, it's important it's- to me
1: because it's what I've done all my life. And I, I tend to naturally want to enhance it i I don't like the words conservation and preservation because that's about going to the past or restricting things you know i want to enhance it and in terms of what you know we do we've got to try and make in in terms of green roofs and nature-based solutions in cities we're trying to make landscapes for the future but they've got to be climate adapted they're not about going back to some kind of retrospective so I'm just going slightly off the question, but I think it's important to say I never talk about restoring when I talk about green roofs, I talk about replicating and, and that's what I do. And it's, you know, a lot of ecologists talk about restoration. I I talk about replication and why it's good in cities. I think we, we have a lot of, and I, I, it's difficult sometimes to put myself in a North American context. Um, You know, we do a lot of lawn and poppy lollipop trees and we go, that's a nice landscape, but you know, what we need is lots of wildflowers. We need diversity. We need to get some of our native vegetation in there. And when that comes in, we bring more pollinators in. And certainly during COVID, when we're all sort of limited in what we could do, I noticed, I'm a naturalist, so I, I noticed these things. How many people I met on Blackheath, which is a big open space in London, you know, just literally 100 metres away, how many people wanting to be in the long grass, not in the short grass? And I, I'm, I'm sure there is something there about their well-being. So bringing nature real meaningful nature back into cities I think is is just good for the livability of cities and it's good for our individual well-being. And personally we have a responsibility to improve biodiversity because there's a biodiversity crisis. and we need to do that in cities as well as you know in the Amazon jungle. Or, or wherever we're losing vast tracts of, I don't know, southeastern Alberta prairie, you know. I hope that's a good answer.
0: So there's a, so there's a solid health-related argument for designing green infrastructure, natural infrastructure in cities around the concept of biodiverse reclamation.
1: Replication, yeah. Replication. I, yeah.
0: I mean, certainly what I do
1: is more about real wildness and it's less about aesthetics but i did an interesting project last year where you know i had to kind of do like what we call a semi-intensive green roof which uh you know for the viewers is more of a kind of roof garden and you know i'm all mr native not in a fascist way but you know i just want to get native vegetation but i uh, i know of a roof where this guy puts these mad you know mexican and canary island alloys and the up on his roof and i just love it (laughs) So I designed this roof with all these kind of exotic, you know, big succulents and something called curry plant and some other non-natives, Ashfordel. But underneath it, I planted all the native wildflowers that we call what we call the London living roofs mix. And it was kind of fun because I'm not a garden designer and a lot of garden designers come up to me and said, that's a really cool roof. And I kind of go well maybe i should be a garden designer but you know i don't want to be a garden designer that's just it's just not (laughs) what i do but it was kind of it was rewarding and it's a great one actually because if you're ever in london you can go to the museum of home and you see it on the way into the museum and it's only quite small but um you know i'm just saying if viewers are in london um it's one you can visit so i hope yeah i think i think we can combine those things i I'm Mr. Native, but I think you can combine exotic and native. And that will come up when we talk about uh, the most recent legislation, which is going to affect green roofs um, mm-hmm. towards the end.
0: Now, you you mentioned you're, uh, you've been a bird watcher since you're about one and a half, or a <laughs> bird, bird tormentor, it might be. Um, but you are quite an inspiring and avid bird watcher. You've got quite a following, I believe, on, uh, on Facebook. And you're often up early, early in the morning, before sunrise, uh, carrying that big camera lens around you on your rambles and on Blackheath and other places, taking phenomenal pictures of your feathered friends and, and insects a lot of the time too. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, Black, the Black Red Star and what role it played in actually getting more green roofs built in London?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting for for, for you know, people – uh, from north america if, if you went to continental europe there's, there's every single village has got black red stars every single you know wherever you're going in, in continental europe you know all the way up to to, to copenhagen and and the southern part of sweden there's was very very common but they only colonized the united kingdom about 1929 and they for for detailed reasons which i'm gonna, not going to go into they became very very prevalent after the second world war because of the blitz all these bomb sites it was called the site bird and it got a protected status because there was only ever about 100 pairs in the united kingdom so when i got involved and i found these pairs nesting in my local industrial landscape which was being regenerated it had this protected species status, which you know, without being too planning orientated, is what is known as a material consideration, which means you you have to mitigate. Mm-hmm. But nobody had ever done any mitigation for black redstarts because you know they're that bird that likes messy wastelands. But there was a real core group of us who really pushed this, and I was only one of them, but I I get all the kind of to fame for it. But it was a very collegiate exercise. And it was at the time there was a lot of urban renewal going on in London. So it's one of those things ecologists and nature people could could latch onto to try and have some impact. And it's it's absolutely wonderful because it then led on to other stuff, London policies and things. And um it was a mechanism to try and get developments to do these things called green roofs. And um, they have never really been done, except on sort of environmental centres or, you know, fluffy hippie places or whatever. They're now on apartment blocks and, you know, condominiums and, you know, financial banks and whatever, you know. And the Black Red Star is there doing its stuff. I was filming one the, a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, it's one of the birds, but, you know, it's had an impact on other birds, which is actually
0: quite moving. That's uh, that's great. We'll be back in just a second to learn more about the greening of London with Dusty Gedge. In
2: 2023, Green Roots for Healthy Cities is taking our smaller scale Greater Green Conference on the road, featuring a strong focus on local design and policy considerations and addressing regional priorities through practical solutions. The next stop on our tour will be in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Grand Valley State University on August 9th and 10th. Join local designers, policymakers, and innovators for expert presentations, tours, networking, and a trade show. The event is approved for seven continuing education credits, and registration starts at only $125. This event will also feature a reception, tour, and award ceremony at the John Ball Zoo for its achievement of a platinum certification through the Living Architecture Performance Tool, along with opening remarks from Grand Rapids Mayor Rosalind Bliss. Special thanks to our sponsors at Live Roof and Livewall, Green Infrastructure Foundation, and Habitat, and Permaloc for their support of this event. For more information, visit us at grey2greenconference.org and we hope to see you there.
0: We're back with Dusty Gedge, president of the European Green Roof Association, talking about biodiversity and green roofs and green infrastructure in general. What policies, uh, Dusty, have you been able to advocate for that support green roofs in London? Maybe you could tell us a little bit more, uh, get into a little bit more detail. You were mentioning that black red starts were protected. Therefore, they had to mitigate. But someone had to somehow make the connection between the green roof and the mitigation.
1: Yeah, well, so w- what happened was we got quite successful with the black red star. And I had gone out to Europe and, you know, become a bit of a, You know, to be fair, a bit of an expert, Um, and we in two thousand we the London had set up this thing called the Greater London Authority, which was actually is quite unique, and it's not because I'm a Londoner; it's unique. It was a, it's a strategic body set up for the twenty first century, which is, you know, quite unique in the world, and it has a thing called the London Plan. And so, what I did from about two thousand two is I, with the green roof industry, we started to campaign to try and get a green roof policy. And it really was a campaign. And had a lot of support from the officers, you know, the city officers and the local neighbourhood officers. You know, we call them the London boroughs. And eventually in 2006, I, with a couple of colleagues, wrote a technical report to support a living roofs and walls policy. And finally in 2008, that was enacted. And very, very briefly... Uh, it's what is known as an expectation an expectation that any major new development in london you know should have green roofs and just so you know because i know there's mandatory requirements um elsewhere probably around the world you know people can get quite draconian um we're a bit sort of like germany in a way that we we try not to do mandatory an expectation is you know the mayor expects which means the onus is on the developer to say why they can't which really in in effect means they always have green roofs so that was the major policy process but just to quickly update people um in in uh i can't remember what it was published because there was so many goings on because of covid but we don't now have a green roofs policy we have what is now known as an urban greening factor policy and People say to me, oh, where your green roof policy gone?" I go, like, well, no, because it's part of the urban greening factor policy. And it's, it's really the same. And the only way you're going to make a development in inner London to meet the urban greening factor is, is, is if you've got a green roof. And, and so it's still growing. And, and that policy has
0: had a massive impact
1: on the uptake of green roofs in London. Massive. So
0: when you say urban greening factor, what, what exactly do you mean by that?
1: Well, you know, like, uh, if I remember rightly, you know, you've got the green area factor in Seattle, you've got the green area ratio in Washington. I know in Malmo, it's a gr- it's a green area factor. In Berlin, it's the biotope area factor, which was the first one. So it's the same as those. And it's it's basically a, a, a development in a specific part of London, depending if it's peri-urban or urban, needs to get a certain green space score. To be able to go ahead, so it's about making sure that there's the right amount of soil, the right amount of soil and vegetation on Mm -hmm. every new development. So it's up the scale, and if I may just quickly go back to 2004 when we were doing this campaign, you know, I hate to bring it up, but you know, all around the globe, you know, nobody talks about climate change until 2004 at a governmental level, and the London was actually quite forthright about it wanted to to adapt to climate change so green roofs were part of that strategy and it's only one small part they've got lots of other strategies but greening is a significant part of how London wants to um, adapt London to climate change like Berlin like you know what Melbourne is doing down in Australia, you know, I got colleagues in Auckland, New Zealand, looking at that, and I know they're doing it in in cities like Singapore. So, you know, this is this is not unique to London, but London's done its way, and you know, hats off to everybody. And if you haven't got one, you should, you know.
0: So, if we re- if you're putting a new building up in in London, then you have to have uh have a certain area of space around the building or on the grounds that meet this factor that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's it it it, it give, it's a it's a planning tool to allow landscape architects to make sure that the development meets a certain score. So there's enough green space there, and it, it's a reasonable process, you know. Mm-hmm. It's very English to be reasonable. No, no, it says it expects you to do it. But now, if you don't put the green roof up, you won't meet the score. So we're not going to let you carry on.
0: Oh so, oh, so it is a hard mandate now.
1: Well, it's you've got to meet the score, so mm-hmm. implicitly you have to have a green roof. But so it's a slight change, but expectation is about you know putting the onus on the developer rather than putting the onus on the city to justify itself. You know, right? Which I right. I, I think that's a better process rather than going you must do this else I'm going to come and beat you up. Yeah,
0: you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, it's
1: less aggressive.
0: You know, yes, yes, it's very mannerly. I would say. We're very polite in England. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, sometimes you and I get into it once in a while about who's the who has the most green roofs. So I had to have, have a question here to ask you, Dusty, about how are you doing on your green roof implementation, you know, relative to other jurisdictions in the world. And there are different ways of measuring who's got the most greenery as well. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I can say now in terms of total area, we went from about 2000...
1: Two hundred thousand square meters in uh 2010 to uh about 1.5 by 2017 there's about 17 percent increase every year um i know this because i've mapped them all individually which we might get onto my uh, remote sensing um and i mapped them because i wanted to demonstrate personally how effective the, the bloody policy was if i if i may say because nobody else was willing to do it but um you know when we talk about 2.5 million square meters you might then find that you know x city has got you know you know two times the amount but x city might be three times the size of london so total area is not the best way to measure it in my view so my federation is sort of in line it's it's out of favor these days it's in line with I think it was the World Health Organization said that every urban citizen should have 10 metres squared of green space per per citizen. So my federation um, and it came out a few German universities were starting to measure green space in terms of area per citizen. So we've we I did this report in 2019. I had data for London for 2017, but. Somebody from a university in Germany had gone around all these different jurisdictions and asked them about their area and then took their population and gave gave some figures. So according to the report that I wrote and according to this German academic, Basel in Switzerland has five point six metres squared of uh, green roofs per citizen, followed by Stuttgart and then followed by Linz. And London at that time only had. 0.19 meters squared per citizen, and I just did a calculation this morning working on data that I collected for 2020. In 2022, I think what I said was we should be about 0.47, so we've got a long way to go to catch up with big Berlin or Stuttgart or Basel. But at 17% increase every year, um, in terms of new developments, uh, we're doing quite well. The issue for London is, I'll just bring this in because I forgot to mentioned this before is where other jurisdictions have some mechanisms to retrofit existing buildings either through incentives we don't because of the nature of our political system and that's maybe when we get talking about carbon neutrality because we've got to find a mechanism 32 percent of central London can be retrofitted tomorrow and that would probably put us up certainly near Berlin if all of that was retrofitted so we're we're, we're reliant upon new developments. Where well, I think that you can get funding now in New York from water rates or something, mm-hmm. and you'll know more about that. But we we wouldn't be able to do that because our we have a and this is not a political statement. We have a privatized water system, so it's not owned by the city, so it's very difficult to to, to incentivize in that way.
0: So your policies are focused on new development, yeah, uh, in yeah, London yeah, yeah. and the surrounds, not on existing buildings. Yeah, know, it, mechanism. It, 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 to, we don't have a, to get green roofs yeah. built other than somebody wanting to do it, I guess.
1: Well, somebody having to do it through the planning system, but we, we don't have a mechanism yet. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things I'm sort of kind of working on,
0: you know. Mm-hmm. Um, have you got any, um, that World Health Organization, 10 meters squared per, per person that you, you mentioned? Uh, I've seen that trotted out before. Do you think that's um, a good indicator or target that countries around the world cities around the world should be shooting for there's been lots of discussion about well what's the end point or what are we you know what are we ultimately trying to achieve here Um, uh, I can't I wouldn't want to say anything with authority I mean that's just a figure that somebody
1: suggested that was some academics came up with so that's the one we use but you know if you was in somewhere like Sao Paulo or Mexico City or some of these really really big mega cities It would be really, really hard to do unless you do it at roof level because you know they're just they're just not designed with big wide streets or you know and they've got limited parks. So you know what we do in terms of walls and and roofs will probably be about the only way those cities could ever get near there. Mm -hmm. When we consider that seventy five percent of the world's population by I think it's twenty thirty will be living in cities. It's something we're going to kind of have to do. But I, I think a lot of cities would struggle with 10 metres squared per citizen, you know, within a 200 metre area or, uh, you know, a one kilometre area.
0: Yes, yes. You know, yeah, I've I been in Sao Paulo,
1: you know, it's going to be really difficult in somewhere like Sao Paulo to to meet something of, of that height, you know.
0: But I think it's good to have a target. Do you know what I mean? I think it's good to have a target. Yeah, and in some in some cities, it seems like it's actually try to trying to stop the the destruction of existing green spaces, not even adding to it. It's just trying to halt it in the face of you know in migration and population growth. Yeah, and you know, I mean, we're where we're at in our life, Stephen. But you know, we've got to be, we've got to
1: in our you know maturity is trying to convey to people that you know, for our our sons and daughters and our great grandchildren, you know, if we don't start to make this transition to greener cities, it's not going to be very nice for them because it's already getting too hot in London. You know, it's just a reality. And that's not, you know, all the climate change deniers can say whatever they like, that's not a political statement. It's just a reality. You know, when London nearly hit 40 degrees C, you know, centigrade last year, London is not designed for 40, 40 degrees C. And we're likely to be getting that annually. It was nearly 32 the other day in June I mean, if I may on that one, like when I go to Vienna, which is where my federation is based, Vienna is an urban heat island strategy because it really is getting like five or six days where it's hitting forty and above. You know, it's just that's hard on people. That's hard on people.
0: Mm -hmm. It's hard on plants too. Yeah, and it's hard on plants. It's it's, it does all kinds of negative things: Uh, energy consumption, air quality, water resources, human health and well-being. Uh, yeah. The, the actual animals that live there. Uh, yeah, this hotter and hotter is uh, definitely not in the something we yeah. want future generations to have to deal
1: with. And I always like to be open and, and you know, I'm I like to think I'm quite fun. But, you know, you know, when we sit back and think about things like that, you know, we've got a moral responsibility and sometimes I think we have to be able to say that in 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 the right way to try and move things forward and i think that's what you my colleagues our colleagues all around the world are are trying to do and you know
0: pat ourselves on the back you
1: know all of us you know
0: yeah we don't use any moral arguments uh or intergenerational equity arguments if you will we don't usually bring those out when we're talking about urban greening um but you're absolutely right that's uh that's certainly part of uh part of the the argument um so just to get off green roofs for, for a second, what, what other opportunities? I mean, yes, land is at a premium in many cities around the world, but are there other sort of what comes to mind in terms of other opportunities to improve biodiversity and all the obviously benefits that come with that?
1: Um, well, in, uh, there's several ways. I mean, obviously, we deal with natural systems, and nature-based solutions. So, you know, even I climb down from the roof sometimes and get involved in things like rain gardens, you know, inspired by the great work of Tom Lipton over in Portland, Oregon, you know. And, you know, I've seen a lot more rain gardens coming into um, into our streets um, all around the UK. I was at a seaside town the other day, and there were these... Um, these these rain gardens there and rain gardens store rainwater but you know they can be planted in a, a mix of native and non-native and deliver for biodiversity but even some of uh, our traditional you know parks you know and, you know try and put it in a global thing i i can remember going to a place called uh, christchurch in new zealand and um, and it, it, they always say christchurch is a bit like tunbridge wells uh, uh, which is not far from where i am and it's a very very tradi- traditional english park You know, and I think we can increase biodiversity significantly and we're starting to see it in our parks. It's changing our parks from these perfectly mown lawns with lollipop trees to having lots of wildflowers on them and and letting the grass grow. And I know there's some stuff going up in Vancouver, actually. I'm aware they're doing all these native wildflower meadows up in Vancouver. And I know down in Australia they're looking at putting these native wildflower things in streets in melbourne i do believe and i think even in perth so you know i think it look you know the old conventional view of you know little britain nice lawn and little tree we need to move away from that and try and make these spaces more naturalistic and certainly when i went to switzerland 20 years ago And, you know, I was told even by my Swiss colleagues, well, you know, it's all about nature conservation, but it's actually saving money because we don't have to mow it too much. And the the Swiss are famous for the gnomes of Zurich, you know, counting counting their Swiss francs. And, you know, their parks used to nearly, you know, all their parks all summer, only about a fifth of it is mown so people can sit down on it. They're saving the city a lot of money, but actually, it's really good for biodiversity. I just a little joke for my Swiss colleagues because they, you know, I I go there a lot and they're very good friends of mine. But it was them who said that, not me. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes, you'll you'll hear about that later, I'm sure. <laughs> but you know, uh, there's also I've seen um, some work um, being done to take like piazzas and these sort of concrete-dominated areas, public areas, and convert them to metal, yeah. which is yeah. Yeah, I've been involved in a few
1: projects where you kind of almost like, you know, don't get me wrong, it's not actually, but you kind of create a kind of green roof, which is on slight wheels, so that actually they can wheel it in in the summer when it looks really nice. And then in the winter, they can wheel it away. And it's in the summertime that we really need that. Um, And a few of those hopefully will go ahead. So, you know, sometimes you've got these big piazzas where it's useful to have completely open grey space, but you could have these sort of mobile areas of biodiversity and greening that can be removed when the piazza needs to have access to lots of people so you know i'm just bringing that up because often people say oh well we need a big piazza you know once every year for the you know the i don't know the buffalo run or whatever it is so it doesn't it doesn't running really, of the
0: bulls the running of the
1: bulls the running of the bulls in, in somewhere in in northern spain but you know what we tend to do and it's very it's actually very very anglo-saxon Um, is we tend to go, oh, there's a problem there, you can't do that. You go like, no, 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 there's a challenge there. How could we do it? And and I've noticed this, this is sort of kind of Protestant, no, challenge, we're going to sit down and, you know, push that one somewhere else. You know, you're nodding, Steve, you know, Stephen, you know, because, you know, but, you know, I think we've got to turn as much hard standing as we can into green space. And I've noticed a lot, a lot of parking spaces are now having pocket parks put in them, mm-hmm. you know, and they can be moved. And so I think there's sort of dynamic ways we can do these things. And I, but I do think when we link biodiversity, well being, more green space, also to sustainable urban drainage and cooling, that's when we're being clever. If a sustainable urban drainage thing is only about storing rainwater, we're not being clever
0: yeah you, we're you've got to use the, the the rainwater stormwater management as a leverage point in the system to get all these other benefits in addition yeah. to stormwater.
1: Yeah. and there's, there's a lot believe me there's a lot of countries which are much much further down the line than we are in the united kingdom on this because of the way our legislation has worked but we're just we're catching up but mm-hmm. i think it's exciting times and you know big drive for nature-based solutions from the European Union, it's starting to have, we're filtering this up and, you know, hats off to, you know, my good friend, Tom Lipton for all the amazing stuff he's done in Portland, which Mm -hmm. is groundbreaking. It's nice to celebrate other people in a podcast. You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely, you know, Tom's one of the uh, early adopters and one of the gentle giants uh, within the whole green roof global movement. Um, Just coming back to green roofs now for a second, you know, as the president of the European Green Roof Association, I noticed recently, you know, last couple of years, you've been promoting this idea of biosolar uh roofs or solar green roof combinations. Can you tell us what that is, why it's important, and you know, why we need more of this kind of stuff in our cities? Yeah, well, I mean, I've I've been doing a lot of been invited out to Europe a lot to
1: talk at a lot of conferences over the last five or six years, but my federation was involved in a project about 12 years ago. Um, to promote training for Biosolar. So let's get technical now, but very simply technical. A Biosolar roof is a solar-mounted system on a green roof, which is integrated into the green roof. A solar green roof is where a solar mounting system is just put on top of a a green roof, which generally tends to be a seed and blanket. Why they're called Biosolar, it's again the Swiss, the great innovators in green roofs, is a biosolar roof delivers solar renewable energy and biodiversity. If it's just a seed and blanket roof, it's not delivering biodiversity in the context of Switzerland or in London. And one of the advantages of solar panels when they're integrated into a green roof system is they create wind and sunshade. And they're the two dryers on a Green roof. So generally, if you've got a north south facing array, which is an array, by the way, uh, listeners, is 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 a number of solar panels. You know, it's the, the whole system behind the solar panels. You get really, really better, taller vegetation because it's in sunshade and it's in windshade. And certainly one of the ones uh, I've recently been involved in designing about six years ago, there's quite a rare butterfly in London, technically, it's called the small blue butterfly. And uh, I managed to record it on this biosolar roof because its food plant is thriving behind the solar panels. And um, I suspect it's all over London. It's just nobody's nobody's finding it because they don't get up on the green roofs. So that's what they are. But the great thing is... um, Vegetation and soil research in Germany and recent research in Switzerland, uh, Swi- um, down in Sydney, has shown that the cooling effect of the vegetation and soil on the panels actually increases their efficiency by about, you know, it varies between about 2 and 4%. And generally, it needs that during the hottest periods of the year because that's when the panels can, the temperature increases so actually combining the two is actually really good in terms of efficiency but in terms of you know the amount of energy you can produce from one roof you have to make a compromise currently unless you're in switzerland because you've got to have a meter at least a meter really between the panels so you can't pack the panels in now i'll just finish up on this because the Swiss are some of the most innovative people I've ever met in my life. And there's a new system which has been uh, designed in Switzerland. And actually, there's another system similar to it in Norway, which is actually called a bifacial system. So it's vertical panels that stand upright and make a lot of energy in the morning, and make a lot of energy in the afternoon. And what they then do is they have a few other what they call butterfly panels to fill up the gap. You know around midday to get the energy now the reason why these are really interesting because 100% of the green roof is exposed for biodiversity and vegetation and actually you can get more panels in and also because it snows in switzerland the panels are really good at reflective light so when it's snowing and the roofs are covered in snow they produce a lot of electricity in the winter when you have a big sunny alpine day and when they realised that, they started to look at using a white growing medium to get reflectivity, and they could increase the efficiency by 10%. Now, I don't know if that's too oh, technical for the wow. viewers, but I just thought I'd get there because it's just just really brilliant. And I've got – I've promised some European groups, official groups, that I'm going to do a, a series of three videos on Biosolar Roos, technical but also open to the public, that goes into this detail, because I think it's one of the things that the green roof industry, the solar industry, that's the solar energy industry, but also the solar thermal industry, which use a lot of pipes, which there's a really interesting synergy there, that we as an industry need to come together and innovate, because we've not been doing it. No. Because I once went on, if I may finish this, sorry to get on a bit of a thing here, one of the roofs that I installed, I went up there on a January day in london we get really a lot of condensation in the winter and i calculated off the back of a napkin each panel in the morning was producing three liters of water and if you're on a coastal even if you're in the coastal mediterranean in the summertime you've got a a moist breeze blowing in how much how much water is a solar panel on a green roof going to produce
0: get you thinking this it depends on the amount of humidity i suppose and how how big the panels are and yeah know, yeah but if so you're a bunch a of breeze. factors there no
1: yeah. but if you've got a sea breeze because i know even in Mallorca, there's a green roof that never gets irrigated because he's irrigated by the sea breeze in the morning even sure. in the middle of august sure. so
0: we need to start thinking about innovating so the giant sequoia trees and other uh, ever giant evergreens in california actually use their needles to capture moisture from sea breezes. That's where they get the bulk of their, uh, yeah. their water. They don't get yeah. it from the ground. They capture it from the air and they bring it down.
1: Yeah, yeah. and these, these these advertising boards in Peru, which make drinking water, you know, because
0: it comes in off the sea, makes drinking water, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a fabulous uh, technological innovation that, that marries renewable energy and the need for renewable energy and you know, obviously transitioning off of fossil fuel consumption and all the benefits of green roofs coming together at the same time. Uh, it's great to hear that you're working on that and the Swiss and the I guess you said the Norwegians are also working on new, yeah. new yeah. technologies as well. We'll be back in a moment with Dusty Gedge talking about green roofs, solar panels and urban sustainability. Don't go away.
3: The Living Architecture Academy is an online learning platform dedicated to bringing you the best training courses, conference recordings, and more on green infrastructure, low-impact development, and sustainable design practices. For over 15 years, Green Roofs for Healthy Cities has provided professional development opportunities to over 15,000 green infrastructure industry professionals from around the world learn all about Integrated Water Management with our Net Zero Water for Buildings and Sites course, or begin earning your Green Roof Professional accreditation, all from the comfort of your home. All courses on the Living Architecture Academy are offered on demand, do not expire, and are approved for AIA, ASLA, and GRP Continuing Education, so you can learn at your own pace, on your own schedule, and earn CEUs. Visit livingarchitectureacademy.com and start your professional development today.
0: We're back with Dusty Gedge, co-founder of Gentian Limited and president of the European Green Roof Association. And we're talking about technology integration between solar panels, which we're seeing more and more of on rooftops and green roofs. Now, Dusty, you were just saying that in Europe, they've started to put, solar panels in vertically as opposed to on an angle and everybody thinks the angular solar solar panels generate the most amount of uh, energy what can you tell us about these vertical panels do they are they really that great yeah i think i think it's the future
1: myself and so the, the but then you know there's there's um limitations here that when they're vertical east west facing what they do is they make a lot of electricity in the morning and they make a lot of electricity in the afternoon evening and that's very useful on social housing you know on housing yeah because people are you know tend to be out of work in the middle of the day so they don't make loading we
0: call that the peak loading times yeah well the the, the energy demand is greatest is in the morning lunchtime in the evening generally
1: yeah. So lunchtime is the issue because it's not making a lot of electricity during lunchtime because they're vertical. Yeah. yeah. So what they then do is they have, you know, they, they balance that out by having some angled panels to get over that midday peak. Yeah. Uh-huh. But because the panels, um, because the panels are vertical and they're reflective and they're trying now the to put you in Switzerland, what they use is um, alluvial gravels, which are white gray and that reflects sunlight back up to the vertical panels so you're not only just getting the sunlight you're getting the reflected light that and this has been researched by the hot school vadensville dr stefan bradison and, and his team He's shown that sometimes they're getting up to a 10 percent increase so it's been you can just google bifacial um, hot school vadensville and there's the research it stays in front of you
0: wow there's a lot of innovation still going on with when it comes to green roofs and other technologies i guess
1: yeah, I think we could be doing a lot more, if I may say, Stephen. And it's the industries coming together. But the trouble is, often the industries are out there just trying to sell what they want to sell. And not we're not doing this kind of transdisciplinary conversations.
0: Mm, everybody's in their box, even in the industry. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about this other bird, uh, coming back to biodiversity again. Tell us about this other bird, the linnet, that you've uh, you've been focusing your your efforts on.
1: Yeah, well, it's actually quite, uh, it's quite moving for me when I talk about it, because obviously I set out to try and, you know, my colleagues set out to try and put these roofs up for Black Red Stars. But the Linnet, um, basically the Linnet in in England, uh, in my lifetime, because I have a book which was published in 1953, which I got when I was a teenager, said, oh, Linnet, common all over the United Kingdom. But in my lifetime, it's collapsed across England and Europe. It's um, you know, it's a it's a it's a Europe and it goes into Eurasia, and it's it was a it's a, it's a bird that like it weedy and intensive agriculture had a massive impact on it. And certainly 20 years ago, when I was being a professional bird watcher, we did find some some pairs locally, and it, it quite likes brownfield sites. There are now I go up on some green roofs nearby, you know, in London, and I see flocks of 40. 50 60 and certainly locally where i did do bird surveys i think there's now more linnets than there were 20 years ago because of the green roofs and i actually when i stand up in public i say that you know sometimes i actually get a bit tearful because it's quite moving you know it's quite moving that something that's collapsed in my life whoops <laughs> i've had a bit of an impact on
2: Saviour of the Linnet. What special, that? That is. Yeah. Could be a lot more of those
0: types of things uh, as we continue expanding green roofs and biodiversity and designing for them for that. Well, congratulations to you. You should be proud of that um, accomplishment. Um, yeah. The, yeah. The, Robins, the Robins will forgive you for your earlier transgressions. Yeah. <laughs> Look, Dusty, I mean, there's some other amazing stuff going on. I think we should share with people uh, in addition uh, that has to do with some of the new policy developments recently, the UK passed legislation that requires developers to not only replace the area of biodiversity they are disrupting through their development, but to actually increase the overall amount of biodiversity in that particular area. And I, this is a real groundbreaking policy something that I could only like wish for in North America. So pardon the groundbreaking pun, but can you, can you try to just walk us through how this policy works and your thoughts about it? But I, I'm not, I'm not an authority on biodiversity net game because it's quite complex,
1: but the idea is if you, if you want to build something from, uh, I think it's November this year, anywhere in England, it's only applicable in england not in scotland wales and northern ireland um you've got to demonstrate 10 percent net gain and you've got to demonstrate that on the site as the primary principle but if you can't for whatever reasons you can also offset that and originally there was a lot more offset than on the site so what it means is you're going to get more green space on these developments but those green green spaces have got to demonstrate biodiversity value now once we're in rural you know peri-urban i'm really my ecologist friends some of them have quite a lot of issues with it because it's really about habitat and less about species mm-hmm. uh Certainly in a a London, in an inner city area, whether it be Birmingham, Manchester, you know, any of our big cities in England, about the only way you're going to do it is by having a green roof. Now, the important thing here in terms of the green roof is there's a metric and I wrote the metric, um, which I have to say. the metric was always designed to meet what is what is known as one of the uk habitat classifications and we have a habitat classification which is quite unique to um the uk which is open mosaic which is actually it's 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 an all-encompassing habitat which is essentially a way of describing post-industrial landscapes that have got good vegetation so it means you're going to have to put up what is known as a biodiverse green roof now so you know a monoc- you know not a monoculture but a seed and blanket or a wildflower turf will not constitute um open mosaic habitat and um that's going to be a challenge for the green roofing industry because you know generally the architects want that approach and one of the things it's going to do is it's actually probably going to improve um the amount of green roofs that are delivered you know to to provide meaningful biodiversity but What's also really important is the developer has to monitor for five years and demonstrate for five years that they've delivered their net gain. And also, and this won't, don't think this will really actually apply to green moves. Is you know, in the wider landscape, they've got to they and how they do this, I don't know, Stephen, but technically they've got to monitor it up for up to thirty years and in 30 years time if they can't demonstrate the biodiversity net gain there's they're penalized now in a uk context that's the only penalized monitoring and penalizing system that i know of in terms of uh planning
2: that That
0: that's uh that is really tremendous
2: and if,
1: if if i may if i sorry to override you steve what what is interesting about it and you know again it it's an English thing. We're the first one to do it technically in a planning system, but already I know Norway have come over. I've had people from Belgium, from the confederation of construction industries come over. We did a tour with them about biodiversity net gain. I know colombia has been talking to the UK government about this. There's quite a lot of countries talking and wanting to see how it, how it works out. Um, So it it, it is quite interesting. Um, But you know, England's doing it first, but you know, power ourselves on the back. But what it's good is it's it, it's it's engaging other countries too. You know,
0: it is, it is, and uh, well, that's what leadership uh, policy leadership does, right? Others follow. I think the EU is looking at it generally too as a yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. as a potential yeah. approach. But but you can't get a ten percent net cre- net increase in biodiversity simply on the roof, right? That that's a that's an, an impossibility.
1: Uh-huh. Well, you, uh, well no, technically, I mean, what you can do if you've got a basically an existing building which you're knocking down, you know, there's no biodiversity on it. So, it's,
0: so that's the baseline then. What's yeah, that's the baseline. That the baseline is zero then. If you're if you're replacing an existing building. Well, again, I'm not an authority on the countryside, but if you're in the
1: countryside and they do an they do an ecological assessment. You know you might have all these habitats there where well, you've got to demonstrate a 10 percent increase on what was there before what was that be- species
0: that's some sort of a species
1: no no it's 10 percent increase and it's generally habitat based okay it's habitat based yeah so it's area yeah and it's quite complex and that's why i only know my bit but if you generally in in most london sites you know they're going to knock a building down and build another one. So the only you know you you're probably going to be able to the only way you're going to do it is green roof. If you're building on a big brownfield site, then it's going to get more complex. But green roofs are going to be a significant part of that story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about green walls? Yeah, I mean, they. I uh, don't think there is a metric for green walls because I don't think they could understand the ecologists where that stood but uh i must admit i haven't looked but i deliberately but i don't think it is
3: it you don't is.
0: think it's included no i don't, I don't think, think it is no. oh, okay mm-hmm.
1: but you could argue uh potentially i could be wrong here so don't quote me but um, if, it, if it's not in there you could argue that it could fit what would be known as hedgerow um uk habitat mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know i can see how it could but um what what normally happens with some of these things, and I noticed when we did our policy, you know what happens is everybody just goes, well, we we'll just do a green roof anyway because it, it just becomes <coughs> you break the culture of resistance. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just becomes commonplace, mainstream. <coughs> yeah, excuse me. <coughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. That's uh, really um, f- fantastic. It may be imperfect and complex but um really it's it's truly uh remarkable and um has uh if it spreads as you say it may um that could potentially be an important game changer for for biodiversity you know uh, worldwide you know yeah yeah hopefully yeah yeah Um. um Hey, I'm just wondering, Dusty, uh, uh, what's next for you? You've got lots of irons in the fire all over the place. Maybe you could share, give us a quick glimpse of where you're headed in your professional work and development. And.
1: Yeah, well, I've got this uh, tech company, I'm, you know, I'm 59. I've, I've got a startup, up you know, <laughs> so, you which know, people say, cool, you're, you're a trendy young person. Um, you know, and I'm quite excited about that. It grew out of wanting to map remotely green roofs, and now we're looking at how we can map biodiversity net gain on green roofs. And, you know, we're very, very good at differentiating with different types of green roofs, but we're also doing that in the wider countryside, looking at biodiversity net gain. And, you know, we're actually doing some stuff – in north america hopefully uh up in alaska mapping habitats um i i i'm i'm very focused in that you know part of my week um the other thing that i'm doing is looking at this carbon neutrality because i want to find a mechanism and it's interesting this year for the viewers uh, the listeners is that you know it's interesting i live in the city of london i go on ruse on financial institutions and there's a thing called the tfnd which basically sort of mandatory reporting for the financial institutions which are banks and have got a report on nature essentially and uh you know that's really hit the fan in the financial sector in the city of london and i know in frankfurt and milan and probably in new york uh so green roofs have got a story to tell you there and if you could tie getting retrofit on central london on the financial institutions and connect it to delivering carbon neutral green roofs does that provide a mechanism that in in terms of environmental sustainability goals reporting means a a bank might go well i'm going to retrofit a carbon neutral green roof for biodiversity because i can report on it so this is outside of the planning system so i've been working on that because i've been working with a couple of um producers who produce materials for green that are suitable for green roofs which have captured or offset carbon and i'll be talking about this at the world um, green infrastructure congress which i just wanted to promote uh, my german colleagues and which i know you're promoting and i'll be talking about that in detail when i'm in berlin but what i'm keen to do is make sure that we get all the ducks standing in the right line before everybody rushes off to try and make loads of money because we've got to make a a good process. And so I'm hopefully with the UCL, uh, Bartlett, uh, well actually the construction department, we get some funding to look at how this economic model might work. And what we want to do is create an economic model, which is replicable in any city in Europe and probably any city in North America and anywhere in the world. Wow. That, that's my aim you, You've known me for a lot of time, Steve. I just don't do things for myself It's got to be something that Can deliver You know, just beyond my little city You know
0: Sure Well, there's a much bigger world Than, uh, than, than Dusty Gedge yeah. out there That needs more people like Dusty Gedge You know, caring about it And fighting for it Yeah, and, fair, and the final thing is Because I used to be
1: an entertainer And people say to me Look, you're good in front of the camera, Dusty I've got over 300 hours of videos of green roos, wildlife. So what I want to, I'm slowly getting there. I published one the other day about a walk I did down in southern Greece talking about wildflowers and green roofs. I just want to make a load of videos that I can communicate my thoughts about green roos, greening things. And hopefully if I meet you in London sometime soon, which I think I might, I might actually do one
0: with you, Stephen. Well, that would be jolly good. Jolly good, my friend. <laughs> hey where, do, where can people go online to find out a little bit more about the uh, efb and what you're doing and your solar stuff like where where should we where should we point people
1: well i mean i think it says the efb efb um hyphen greenroof.eu is the federation's website um hopefully some of these videos will be done in association with them uh, i uh, don't get me wrong here i've got such a unique name you just google dusty gedge <laughs> everything I've there's done. only
0: one ladies and gentlemen there's only <laughs> one <laughs>
1: i I don't mean that arrogantly but actually you know people say to me how can i find you i said i just google my name and you'll find somewhere to get in touch with me i mean really i mean I mean, all the reports you in terms of reports and stuff you just go london green roof reports and they come up but i Mm -hmm. can send you some links which you can share with people but my youtube channel is dusty gedge and i've got quite a few green roof videos on there already and some quite interesting ones about urban biodiversity but i want to do more and the more more people watch it the more people share it the more we
0: communicate so my ego is good but we get the stories out (laughs) great hey thanks so much for your time dusty it's been a real pleasure uh speaking with you uh, at length about your work and your past and i'll look forward to uh hopefully breaking bread with you sometime soon yeah Uh, so that's it ladies and gentlemen thank you for joining us the sustainable futures podcast with me today has been dusty gedge He's the co-founder of a new company called Gentian Limited. Even at the tender age of fifty-nine, he's out there at it, uh, as well as the uh, president of the European Federation of um, uh, Green Roof Associations, and he's been doing remarkable work uh, using the rooftops to do all kinds of fantastic thing and things and and including um, supporting biodiversity and some of his favorites the feathered friends out there that we have our birds so thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you uh in the coming editions thank you